0: We feel like that this major contribution that we're calling for is a means by which Christian leadership in the private sector can be a light to the nation, leaven in the lump, to make a difference in general terms.
1: Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word & Way. I'm your host, Word & Way Editor and President Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word & Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at WordenWay.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. In this week's episode, we're going to have a conversation with Chris Sanders, an attorney in Louisville, Kentucky, who serves as coordinator of Empower West, a coalition of black and white clergy who are doing some really important work in thinking and talking about race, racism, reparations there in their community and beyond. Out of this group came the initiative known as the ANGELA Project, a three-year effort in collaboration between the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship the National Baptist Convention of America, and the Progressive National Baptist Convention to commemorate this year, in 2019, the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved African to what is now the United States. After meetings in 2017 and 2018, a gathering of the Angela Project was held before the CBF meeting in Birmingham, Alabama earlier this month. Chris served as the moderator, or the MC for the event that was held at 16th Street Baptist Church there in Birmingham. That church was the site of a bombing in 1963 that killed four young girls as they were prepping for worship that day. And so there we were, black and white Baptists from across the country, gathering together in that holy space. And so I was really excited to have the opportunity to sit down with Chris while we were in Birmingham to talk about the work of Empower West and the Angela Project. And this is actually going to be the first of three conversations related to Empower West and the Angela Project. And so I hope that you'll come back the next two weeks as we'll have conversations with Kevin Cosby of Simmons College of Kentucky and Joe Phelps, a recently retired minister there in Louisville. They have served as co-chairs of this effort. They both spoke at the Angela Project meeting in Birmingham, and they're going to add to this conversation. But I think Chris does a really good job of introducing the topics and the players involved in this conversation. So here's my interview with Chris Sanders of Empower West. Chris, thanks for joining us on the program. Hi. So you are coordinator
0: of Empower West Louisville. Yes. So what is this effort? Four years ago, Dr. Kevin Cosby, pastor of St. Stephen Church in Louisville, president of Historically Black Simmons College, was reaching out looking for allies. Having had experience with Baptists of all stripes, he was looking for some other Baptists, S.O.B. for short, to say that there had to be like-minded, passionate, compassionate Baptists who cared about the same social justice that he understood and cared about. And found that by reaching out to Joe Phelps, then pastor of Highland Baptist Church in Louisville. They visited, and that turned into a regular gathering we call Empower West Louisville, which is a longer conversation.
1: So how did, how did you get connected with this conversation? Because
0: we, we have these group of pastors, and you're the lawyer. I'm a lawyer. <laughs> I'm not a pastor. Never been ordained. At the time this was going on, I was the interim coordinator of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Kentucky. And so helped convene this group and did that as part of my cbf work i do i wear a lot of different hats so i just was glad to to bring people together and keep bringing people together and became the regular convener and then staffer of all this work Empower west louisville is a project of simmons college of kentucky so along with many other things i do i'm I'm, work for simmons
1: and kind of birthed out of this these conversations and this effort has also been the Angela Project, yes, which has been a, a three-year project leading up to the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans this year, August 20th. 400 years, and, and so curious. I want to do a little bit of the background of, of mm-hmm. how that idea came to be.
0: In 2016, Reverend Cosby, who is a tremendous historian, says to the group, "Do y'all know we're approaching a major anniversary?" What? (laughs) And he said, in August of 1619, the first person enslaved arrives on North American shores. Now, there have been people arrive in the Caribbean. Many people have arrived in South America. But the first person arrives in Jamestown in 1619, she was from Angola. We think she was a Christian because Angola had been evangelized by Christian missionaries for 100 years. So we think that she was a Christian evangelized by Christians and enslaved by Christians. She's taken from her home, brought to Jamestown and she's they name her Angela. And so we're embarking in 2016 on a 3-year run up to the 40th anniversary of slavery in America. At that time nobody was was generally talking about the 400th anniversary. Now now you hear some things being said in other circles. But we said we needed to elevate that in very important date and so we began working on an effort to make people know about the anniversary and talk about why the plight of black america that began 400 years ago is still is still a problem and with many problems we could talk about. We said we it the Angela project. And we decided we wanted to make it national in scope. So one of the first things we did was to reach out to the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship under then coordinator Susie Painter. And that beginning looked really good, but we didn't want to do that in a vacuum. So we have a strong relationship at Simmons with the National Baptist Convention of America under President Samuel Talbert. He's very enthusiastic about it. The NBC is moving its headquarters to Simmons in Louisville. So that's you know, another reason to make this Louisville-centric. We then reached out to also the Progressive National Baptist Convention to be part of all this. And we decided to do sort of three annual events, 2017, 2018, 2019. So the Angela Project has been largely an annual conference in order to elevate the concern about the plight of black America founded in slavery. It grows out of the work that we've done in Empower West and... We've just kind of put it on the national stage.
1: For those who haven't been able to make it to these projects, I wonder if you give us a
0: little recap of some of what's happened at these events. So we've at, on different occasions have had different conference speakers in series. We've done them first in Louisville, in 2017. 2018, a short project, a truncated project at the PNBC Convention in Philadelphia. Then in larger fashion a few months later in Louisville. And then this year in Birmingham in conjunction with the with the CBF General Assembly. The first two have, were pre-conferences. We did them the day before major events. So we, you know, devoted a good half day to first because the first one was in 2017 at the NBCA conference in Louisville. And we brought national speakers to address the crisis in black wealth we gave an award to pastor lawyer judge wendell griffin from little rock because of his courageous leadership we heard greetings from the denominational heads about why this matters to them had some feedback kind of where do we go from here stuff in 2018 we're we're working alongside pnbc leadership to have a a philadelphia-based event very similar was the I think that was the first time we had a big presence from two of our our strong commentators vet Carnell and Antonio Moore who are do a lot with talking about the racial wealth gap we've we've got a unique contribution to all this it's been about the crisis in black wealth as opposed to just crisis in black income so that's been part of that
1: I think it's important to explain why wealth
0: mm-hmm. is a more important issue than income okay I'll mm-hmm. tell my own personal take on this. I have a house. My house is my primary wealth. I have a house because my mama had a house. And because my wife's father provided some income to us, generational income, we were able to use to buy our first house. Because he had a house and they had a house. My grandfather before them. Black folks, by and large, other than a smattering of people, have largely been locked out of intergenerational wealth. If your parents couldn't get a house because you didn't have a decent job or because of redlining kept you out of buying a good house, if because people just too poor to buy a house or to have a pension or a job that had a pension, there's no intergenerational wealth to pass from one to the next in order to be able to accomplish any growth in security. That's the racial wealth gap, and it's huge. The average black family family wealth is about eight grand, compared to people like me, which is a hundred grand. And so the differences start and getting worse, and it requires, you know, a massive change of public policy in order to make sure that people don't, you know, just fall into zero black wealth in a couple of decades. And then you had a, another event in 2019, in 2018, 2018 at Simmons. Yeah, at Simmons. We focus a lot in that situation on education with a particular emphasis on historically black colleges. For, for your listeners, there are 100 historically black colleges in America, 60 are public schools, 40 are private schools. And because of lack of black wealth, they're, they're not strong black alumni. There aren't, aren't strong black grants. And so we focused upon the need for the sustenance and prosperity of historically black colleges because they are such great predictors and producers of black educated professionals. Percentages escape me. Black lawyers, black doctors, black teachers, black executives are overrepresented from historically black colleges. Black colleges are are 100 of the 3,000 plus institutions of higher education in America, but produce 30, 40, 50 percent of black professionals. Black people just succeed in historically black colleges. HBCUs need to thrive. So we focused a lot on that and wanted people to understand that in supporting HBCUs, that we're, encouraging a fostering of a black middle class which has been lost to the extent it ever really existed so we talked about education 2019 we wanted to talk a lot about the crisis in black wealth as with an eye on repentance and repair so we're we're just finishing the angela project work here at the cooperative baptist fellowship kudos to the cooperative baptist fellowship for not just making the angela project a pre-conference CBF leadership and staff have woven the work of the Angela Project throughout the entire General Assembly because we're part of the CBF's general work in racial justice that extends beyond the Angela Project but coordinates closely with the Angela Project. So the Angela Project at CBF this year was very much devoted to the racial wealth gap. Again, with our strong presence of Yvette Carnell, and Antonio Moore. And I want to say a word a moment about Dr. William Derrick. Don't forget. What has is, is been very powerful at the Angelo Project this year has been, been two speakers, Josh Poe and Reverend Joseph Phelps. Joe Phelps, I think he's also one of your guests, been speaking very much about his journey, about his own experience from relative white privilege. I say relative because Joe's the first man in his family to go to college. Grew up a son of a son of a factory worker, stay at home mom. You know, in, in around Dayton, Ohio. Most of your lit- listeners would say, Joe's not a man of privilege. But when you realize that there are benefits to whiteness that come to people just because you're white, no matter how much money your papa makes, then that's an eye opener. And so Joe talks a lot about a lot about that. And I'll let him speak for himself. Josh Poe is one of our great friends in Louisville who has done amazing research that is not really. It's, I mean, it sounds strange to say, but is not has not been done by anybody else anywhere else on the area of redlining. People say, well, the problems of black people ended with the Civil War and emancipation. Well, after. After the Civil War, there was slavery by another name under Jim Crow and sharecropping and convict leasing and the terror of the night Riders and the denial of the right to vote in the early part of the 20th century and the lynchings of the 1920s and then with redlining that began in the 1930s and continues. As Josh says today, we don't call it redlining, we just call it the real estate market. We created a system by which we codified and legitimized and legalized separating people by color in order to create zones that became housing markets where loans could be made or couldn't be made. And so Josh's work in redlining is an eye-opener for everybody who hears it. And i got to tell you, it is so impressive and so unusual for most people. I have seen and heard Josh several times. I still get something new every time. So we present on redlining to show everybody in an audience particularly of white people who didn't don't know why they do better than black people and an audience of black people who don't know why they they do don't do as well as white people just have vague sense of all this to say your government did this because private sector wanted the government to do it. And it happened to Democrats and Republicans. And it can only be reversed by a massive federal change in public policy, massive federal dollars. So we we talked about all that. The other exciting thing we're doing is a run-up to the 400th anniversary, which happens on August 20th of this year, is a 40 days of prayer. You know, 40 days is classic biblical repentance Starting July 12th, we're encouraging people to do daily personal work in the form of reading daily devotionals. We've got them published for you, which are the narrative accounts of the lives of, uh, lives of slavery as told by escaped slaves. And then, of course, there's scripture and prayer that goes along with it. Forty days leading up to kind of a national coordinated remem- remembrance and service that would be headquartered in Louisville, but hopefully replicated in places around the country.
1: Yeah, so 40 Days of Prayer for Liberation, Where? African Descendants of Slavery. I think is exactly. if you put
0: that in Amazon or Barnes & Noble, it'll find it. You can, you can buy the find book it. online, in Barnes and & Noble and in Amazon. Yeah. And you and mentioned, published, published by Simmons College. Published by Simmons College. And you mentioned ADOS. That's an acronym that that's, that is fairly new parlance, the American Descendants of Slavery. It's not simply that people are discriminated on basis of color or culture, although there's tons of that, and it shouldn't be discounted. It is that people had a unique legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and all the things I just mentioned because, because of their family lineage. Dr. William Darity, professor of social policy, economist by trade, at Duke University, came to be with us for the Angela Project here at CBF this week. Dr. Darity is a a notable scholar in this issue issue of repentance and repair. He came down to be with us on Wednesday instead of testifying before Congress on Wednesday on this very issue because he wanted to be with people of faith in numbers, black and white together to to help explain why this, why we're in the situation that we're in. So, we devoted a significant portion of the Angelo Project to explaining why there are specific needs of, of people, ADUS for short, and why it's going to take public policy efforts to accomplish that. There is significant debate now, legitimate significant debate about what that looks like. But the important thing is, there's a debate. It's there amongst presidential hopefuls on the Democratic side. It's there in Congress now, debating a resolution to consider a commission to study preparation for slavery. And people are saying, not, not just, well, should we, but, well, maybe if we should, what would it look like? And that's, that's a big step forward.
1: Well, let's talk about this topic of
0: reparations, and, and there is the governmental question, which mm-hmm. which Dr. Right.
1: Darity and, and others have been have been talking about, and is a, and it? And you're right, it, the conversation is evolving from should we, or mostly we shouldn't, has mm-hmm. been a lot of the public discourse for decades. To then, well, what would it look like? But there's also the the Christian conversation. Mm-hmm. We'll come back to the Empower West story. Great. With the call to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Louisville, Kentucky, who in December released a report documenting much of. Their slave-owning founding, the four founders held over, between the four of them held over 50 enslaved persons in captivity. Many of their early leaders and professors and key donors were supporters of the Confederacy, even after the Civil War, supporters of the Lost Cause. And so they, they lamented this. They didn't apologize, and they didn't suggest really doing anything else. So they lamented. So Empower West has now given private and then now a public Call to repentance that involves this repair reparations. So, I wonder if you could talk about this. You know, again, this is, I know there's the governmental public policy question, which, as Dr. Darity has explained, is the only way that this is societal level. Only the government can really deal with this issue. But there is a chance for Christian institutions to, to lead the way. You know, we led the way among Baptists, we split 15 years before the nation split. And I'm I struck by that, that imagery of, as you were talking about, Angela, that Christians were enslaving Christians, among others. I mean, it is, it's, it's it's wrong on any, more, any level. But the idea that as those boats are coming across the ocean, there are prayers above the decks and below the decks, and they, mm. they're not the same prayer. Yes. And so there's 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 something for the Christian community here Yeah. that perhaps we could be once again ahead of the government. Right. And, and so I wonder if you could explain this call.
0: Two things immediately come to mind. One is... In the, the hard work that we've been doing around the Empire West Table for four years, we keep coming back to, as a touchstone the story of Zacchaeus, that Zacchaeus repents of his corrupt mistreatment of his fellow Jews and Hebrews, that he doesn't just pray a little prayer and everything's all right. He says to Jesus, if I stole anything, I'm going to give it back fourfold. And for everybody, I'm going to give half of what I gave. And then Jesus says, salvation has come to you and to your house. White people don't typically think about peoplehood. We we think of ourselves as individuals. So, we don't think of ourselves the white community the same way the black folk think about the black community and the kind of peoplehood that goes with that. But what Zacchaeus is saying, this is for me and for mine too, and we're doing this together for our, our collective salvation. So we decided as one of our sort of touchstone ethics that Christians having been the the moral and theological grounding for these atrocities. Christians have to lead the way for making it better. So when we call upon Southern Seminary and, and personified by Dr. Albert Mueller, president, we're not just asking for them to give, we're asking them for them to be a light to the nation. We ourselves would like to be a light to the nation, those of us in part West. I'm, I'm a Southern Seminary graduate. This is personal to me and to people like me because being convicted from by where we come from and where our school that we held dear came from. And so we feel like that this major contribution that we're calling for is a means by which Christian leadership in the private sector can be a light to the nation, leaven in the lump to make a difference in general terms. So we didn't ask for an apology, we didn't ask for a resolution. We asked to gift from white wealth held in the hands of our school. Estimated that Southern Seminary has a hundred million dollar endowment. We think that's true. I think that's what they say is true. If in which case we asked for the biblical tithe, that that money should not go internally for the use of Southern Seminary for white decisions to, quote, benefit, unquote, black people, but that it should be given as money that is wrongfully held to the ownership and control of the black community. We think that means within our town, because of, of connections between Southern Seminary and Historically Black Simmons College, it makes a lot of sense. That money should go from the east side of Louisville to the west side of Louisville into the hands of Historically Black Christian College, Simmons College of Kentucky.
1: There's such an obvious connection there. The fact that Simmons College was started in that community at a time when blacks couldn't go to Southern Theological Seminary. It seems like the very obvious community, institution-to-institution institution right. type of moment.
0: One of, the, one of the knocks on reparations is is that well, you know, are you just saying we need to write everybody a check? Now, I'm actually not saying no to that because I think that that's the work of the commission that needs to be addressed. So let's put that over on, on the shelf for a second. Put it, in the, put it in your mental parking lot. What we are saying is damage was done to a people as a people and that repair ought to be about people's institutions that uniquely serve. People as a people. And this so historically black colleges have done an amazing job serving the black community as a people. It's a pretty free market, conservative, institutional approach to repair for people as a people.
1: Of course, Al Moeller has said no. Yes. And not so politely, but he has said no. Yes. But I'm curious about other responses mm-hmm. in the community. The conversations has been happening the last couple of months. Mm-hmm. How has that dialogue been going?
0: When Dr. Moeller rebuked us privately, we we published our letter to him publicly as an online petition. It's been signed by over 300 people, many of whom are seminary graduates, Southern Seminary graduates like me, or the former faculty. People have strong ties to Southern Seminary as part of, you know, their faith journey, by and large, it's been pretty, pretty exciting and pretty positive saying that this is, this makes good sense. If you're trying to get a handle on what it means to benefit a people, this would be a good way to go. We're hoping that we're making the idea of institution to institution, repentance and repair something that can be part of the national conversation.
1: One of my questions about both Empower West and Angela Project is kind of what's next. What do you what do you, mm-hmm. you hope's coming?
0: I'll give you a, a, just a, an organizational example. One of the ways that we, I'll speak for the white side of the table, and Empower West Louisville have learned has been by learning from Black educated leadership, Dr. Cosby, but also other great scholars, and then reading books together. We are readers. So we read a lot of books, and when we do, everybody has that that personal experience. Then you, you all read the same book. so you have you've had to experience the same stuff. Early on in Empire West, we decided we said this is too too important to keep to ourselves, so we didn't. We held the citywide book club in Louisville, and we brought them one of the books that we've been reading. We took it to the local newspaper; they published reflections from our our members. We encouraged people to read the book. We held an author forum at Highland Baptist Church, and 500 people showed up at a book forum. We're on to something. We we're going we to do this again. We do, By the way, we do this during, during February, Black History Month. So that was 2016. We decided to do it again in 2017. We held that event at Crescent Hill Church because they they're bigger than, than Highland. And we had 800 people show up. We're on to something. And we did it again in you know, 2018 and 2019, hundreds of people keep coming out to read books that they otherwise wouldn't be encouraged to read. And Joe Phelps asked me, because it gets back to your question about what's next. Joe Phelps asked me one point right before one of these forums through three days. I said, well, Chris, why are we doing this? I said, because when it comes down to making important decisions as matters of public policy in our community, we won't have to do the same hard work each time. Of grounding this, by, and sort of to explain it, we will say we read a book called The Color of Law, which is all about redlining, and hundreds of people have read in our community have read about redlining, and heard presentations about redlining. So when it actually comes to opportunity to turn this into public policy about redlining, we want it to say, well, you know, why? We'll go. We we'll just go. Oh, you just. It's like you know, just an offhand reference, just like Richard Rothstein says in The Color of Law, and everybody nods together. We will have done our grounding work so that when, when, as opportunities arise, we can do that. We'll keep on doing that. We'll do our annual book club. We live stream it. So if you're in Missouri or Texas or wherever, you can watch the author forum being held in Louisville. Get Gather your own group to read the book and then experience and reflect on upon it together. That's just one thing.
1: Is that on your all's Facebook page? It is. okay.
0: You can read, uh, and you can go to empowerwest.com. Also, EmpowerWest.com
1: can lead people to the change.org petition if they want to do. Yes, that's right, right. They're out front, front and center. Please sign. All right. well, very good. Well, Chris, thanks so much for being on the program and thank you for all that you are doing in all of these various areas with Empower West and the Angel Project and your witness. Thanks to you and to
0: Word and Way. Appreciate you.
1: Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. You can learn more about Empower West at EmpowerWest.com. As always, you can learn more about us at wordandway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you have any comments or feedback, you can email me at bkaler at wordandway.org. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook. Head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. If you would like to donate to support this program, we greatly appreciate it. You can go to wordandway.org and hit the donate button and whatever you give there will help the production of this podcast as well as our website and monthly magazine. Thanks for listening.